0: Hi everyone, in Beimei, Nanmei, Ojo, Yajo, Feijo, He, Oda, Thanks for downloading this episode of the China History Podcast. Part 5 already, and this is my favorite episode in the life of Deng Xiaoping. We left off last time in the latter half of 1975. After falling down hard during the Cultural Revolution, Zhou Enlai sort of cajoles Mao into bringing Deng back, which he does officially on March 9th, 1973, And Deng works tirelessly to bring the nation back from the brink of disaster, very much like he had done before following the Great Leap Forward. He focuses on industry, education, science, technology, culture, and healing society. Deng has formidable enemies. His enemies were the radicals led by the Gang of Four, Jiang Qing, Wang Hongwen, Yao Wenyuan, and Zhang Chunqiao. And it was thanks to Jiang Qing's personal relationship with Mao and the liking the chairman took to the Young Radical and Gang of four Member Wang Hongwen that were Jiang's most powerful weapons. You gotta hand it to Jiang Qing. She really knew how to get Mao's goat. She knew just the right things to say and when to say them. And even though the chairman had repeatedly rebuked her publicly and privately and knew she was eternally up to no good, she still hung in there and kept feeding him information and spinning the info in such a way so as to ensure the best results for whatever her ulterior motives were. As I said many times before, at heart, Mao was an old-fashioned revolutionary, and although he was all settled and lived like an emperor, he didn't want to be complacent and clung to the concept of perpetual revolution. And the one huge, gigantic elephant in the room, the one unspoken thing was how to judge the Cultural Revolution. Mao considered this his masterpiece as far as his, you know, greatest achievements went. This, and of course, defeating the nationalists. Mao considered these his crowning achievements. Mao is so larger than life and powerful and omnipotent. Who in their right mind is going to walk right into a buzzsaw and say anything even the slightest bit critical of the Wen Hua Ming, the Cultural Revolution? You know, 1975... This was only, what, uh, 16 years after Peng Dehuai dared to speak up at the Lushan Conference, you know, about the Great Leap Forward. And Let me tell you, although he ended up dying of cancer in 1974, you'd be hard-pressed to find any of China's original lineup going back to the Long March days who suffered as horribly as Peng Dehuai did during Mao's greatest achievement. Not only did Peng go way back with Mao, he was only five years younger than the chairman and was born only 50 kilometers away from the chairman's birthplace. But look what happened to him. So, speak up, say anything bad about the Cultural Revolution, do or say anything that reflected badly on it. Not a good idea. Better just keep walking. There's nothing to see here. Everyone knew the Cultural Revolution was a disaster, and Mao must have felt that everyone, you know, sort of felt that way. So in his final years, with an eye towards his legacy and what future... Suma might say about Mao Zedong, the chairman had grown particularly sensitive by mid-1975 about possible backtracking on the Cultural Revolution. Everyone was saying how great it was now, but what about after he was gone? This is what obsessed the 82-year-old Mao. Well, 83 by Chinese reckoning. The problem, as Mao saw it, was in Deng Xiaoping's haste, to restore order across every segment of China. A lot of people were being brought back into the fold who had suffered greatly during the Cultural Revolution. And Mao for sure knew that these guys suffered due to his policies and his directives. Technocrats, scientists, pragmatists and whatnot, joe people, dung people, they all might have an axe to grind with Mao in this whole 10-year period, so Mao feared this a lot. For someone who thought like Mao... It seemed nothing was more important than preserving his legacy as he wanted it to be written. And Chairman Mao Zedong, I know I keep saying this, by the end of 1975, he's in his final year of life. So all those times before when I said the chairman wasn't in too good a shape, now he's really in bad shape. And so he even knew with every potion or cocktail or elixir of life, whatever he was consuming, uh, he didn't have too long. So there was this urgency with Mao to deal with this. So here we are, it's 1975, and once again, Deng is juggling chainsaws and axes and his attempt to carry out practical and effective measures, and at the same time not cross the party line and give the Gang of Four something to point at and run to Mao with. By mid-year, Deng had replaced Wang Hongwen as the chair of the top party meetings. Dung's leadership in 1975 won praise from Mao, but by the end of 1975, once again, storm clouds are beginning to gather around uh, Dung's person. Ezra Vogel goes into quite a bit of detail about how Dung spent the better part of 1975 trying to bring order out of chaos with critical utilities like the railways and the steel industry, both of which had suffered the worst abuses during the Cultural Revolution. But just as Dung fared, his enemies, seized on his alleged indifference to party basic principles and showing too much faith in empiricism, that school of thought most associated with John Locke, well, we could go on and on, but I think you catch the drift of what it was like for Dung once he came back in 1973. He laid low at first, hung in Zhou Enlai's shadow, stayed out of the limelight. Then before too long, Zhou Enlai is too sick and frail to meet the daily demands of being the premier of China. So then Deng starts to take command, and like I said, he danced on this knife edge, and by the end of 1975, Mao saw his legacy being dismantled. And he wasn't even inside his mausoleum yet. It surely must have made Mao think. After he was gone, how far is Dung going to go? Mao, by the end of 1975, had gotten rid of his two principal go-betweens, Nancy Tang and Wang Hai-Rung, a.k.a. the two ladies. If you wanted to see Mao, you had to go through these two. As Vogel pointed out, these two saw Dung's star rising, and Mao's falling, so they began to, you know, get overly friendly with Dung, and Mao didn't like that. So they were pushed aside and replaced, and now Deng has a new foe who enters the picture. This was Mao Yuan Xin, Mao's nephew. Mao Yuan Xin was in awe of his uncle, and never missed an opportunity to shine his shoes and tell him how great he was, so he fit in real nicely. The nephew, loyal also to the gang of four, filled his uncle Mao with all the right words that filled the paranoid Mao with suspicion about Deng. So as we enter the final months of 1975, Deng could already see he's cruising for a bruising and he knows once again he's in Mao's gun sights. Finally, there's a showdown in November between top leadership and Mao is trying to get Deng to publicly agree that the Cultural Revolution was, despite the mistakes, 70% good. Mao was trying to get Deng to say this publicly and in the official party record, so that after Mao died, it would be too hard for Deng to backpedal. Well, Mao himself didn't participate in these meetings to get Deng to go along with his line, so he had his nephew, Mao Yuan duly report in after every meeting. And I'm sure like anyone in this position, he no doubt put his own spin on the information he gave him. Finally, Deng had to face the full Politburo, and Jiang Qing had a field day letting not only Deng have it, but all of Deng's men, too. Everything Deng Xiaoping tried to do during the past year was slowly deconstructed, and the radicals just eviscerated Deng for all his policies. Well, Deng should have seen it coming. He knew he was treading on thin ice with many of his policies, so when Mao turned against him again, the radicals knew they had Deng right where they wanted him. At a major meeting, November 24th, 1975, Mao, in a letter to the group gathered there to criticize Deng, puts the thumbscrews on Deng to affirm the Cultural Revolution and just come out and say it. It was okay. But Deng was too wily, and his responses were evasive, and basically Mao couldn't get his way. Deng stood by everything he did in 1975, even if it did go against the party orthodoxy. Dung finished off November-December 75 getting peppered with attacks from everyone who nailed him for rightist reversal of verdicts, which simply means he was being criticized for going against Mao's cultural revolution policies and bringing back all these rightists. So not only did Dung find himself a victim of uh, relentless attacks, so did his key lieutenants. All the future shining stars of the 1980 reform years, Hu Yaobang, Wan Li, Zhang Aiping, Zhou Rongxin, Hu Xiaomu, to name a few. They all got it. President Gerald Ford visited China in early December 1975. Mao met with him on December 2nd. Now, although Deng was under the gun in a big way, he still handled this whole U.S. presidential visit and had laid the groundwork earlier with Kissinger. So Mao, with Deng present, meets with Ford. When Mao and Deng parted after the meeting and photo ops, it was the last time they would ever meet again, at least on this earth. And after a couple weeks after this meeting between Mao, Deng, and Ford, Kang Sheng died. And if you haven't heard the podcast about Kang, go check it out. His death was a harbinger of things to come for these aging leaders from the Yan'an period. By early January in 1976, Deng was fighting for his political life. In 1976, my friends, is going to be one of those years for the history books. In all the modern histories of all the countries of all the world, there's always one year that stands out. In China, I suppose several years stand out, 1911, 1949, and 1976. In today's episode of the China History Podcast, we focus in on the year 1976 and we examine this turbulent year. You know, next year and the year 1976 have something in common. Both are dragon years. Chui, the first day of the new year, will be on Monday, January 23rd, 2012. We'll usher in the year of the dragon. Deng Xiaoping was born in the year of the dragon. Mao was a snake. Well, let's just say the new year's front page editorial, The People's Daily, carried a message from Mao. And when Deng read the part about how achieving stability and unity did not mean neglecting class struggle. He knew he still had to walk this gauntlet yet. The bottom line was Mao was trying to browbeat Dung into accepting that one thing which was most sacred to Mao, class struggle. Dung, time and again, said, yeah, it's important, but it's not the most important thing. Well, Mao was saying, yeah, it was the most important thing. And Dung had his heels dug in hard on this one, and he was prepared to take another fall. And as Deng began to fall as early as October 75, so did all his initiatives that later became associated with the four modernizations, the Suga Xian Daihua. Well, the first H-bomb to go off in China in 1976, metaphorically speaking, that is, happened on the morning of January 8th. Soon into the year, Deng Xiaoping's mentor for half a century, the man whose impact on Deng and therefore all the good things China enjoys today, passed away at the age of 77. Now, just as we're doing with Deng, I'm also going to spend some time looking at Zhou Enlai one day. There's more than one school of thought regarding Premier Zhou and how he's viewed by people and posterity. But I could say overall he was beloved of the people, and we'll see a few months later when the Chinese people's grief and emotion for their premier starts to boil over. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, January 8th, Zhou Enlai, though absent mostly from the daily struggles going on at the party center, he passes from the scene. Deng Xiaoping lost more than a friend and mentor. The first thing that happened was Deng was demoted, and Hua Guofeng promoted. Mao personally handled his old comrade's funeral arrangements, and the prevailing attitude was that Mao didn't give the premier his due. Maybe Mao in his advanced years thought that if he just played everything down and didn't make a big deal, the memory of Zhou Enlai and all he stood for would fade faster into oblivion. Mao didn't even show up at the funeral, and it was no big state funeral, no world leaders were asked to attend or do anything special. So, Mao couldn't make it to Joe's funeral, but eh, he found time for Nixon when he made his post-presidency trip to Beijing in January 76. Mao miscalculated. Ezra Vogel says in his biography of Deng that the death of Zhou Enlai had the kind of impact as when Franklin Roosevelt died or when JFK was shot. He was such a giant of a man who lived in the shadow of a giant. He had created Deng Xiaoping, who went on in the 1980s to transform China. Zhou had been the one all these years that kept Mao's revolutionary fuel rods from complete nuclear meltdown. He had always been the last line of defense between Mao's experiments and the nation's complete destruction, and now he was gone. There was quite an outpouring of grief. Grief because he was perceived by the Lao Bai Xing as a good and decent man, a credit to the country's honor and international prestige, and there was also grief over the idea of what did the immediate future portend without Joe in the picture? Even in Joe's weakened state, he was still able to protect people. Now, with Zhou Lai gone, who would protect them now? Well, Joe was cremated at Ba Baoshan Cemetery, which we featured in CHP number 62. His funeral procession had over 100 black limos, and a few people showed up. When I say a few, it was between one and two million Chinese ordinary folks braving the freezing January Beijing cold January 12th, it was estimated that about 2 million people showed up at one time or another in Tiananmen Square to lay wreaths at the Monument to the People's Heroes, the iconic Renmin Yingxiong Jinianbei. At the official party eulogy for Zhou Enlai, it fell to Ye Jianying to give it, but Marshal Ye said that Deng should give it, you know, all things considered, and Deng gave the eulogy in front of 5,000 party members. Vogel mentions that, according to one account, when Deng began the speech by saying, "women's only our premier, his voice broke. This was a tearjerker of a speech. Vogel didn't put the text in his book, but um, Dr. Henry Kissinger did, so I snagged it from his book. I'm only going to read some of these uh, words Deng Xiaoping said on that day about his lifelong mentor and comrade, as taken from Dr. Kissinger's book on China. Quote, He was open and above board, paid attention to the interests of the whole, observed party discipline, was strict in dissecting himself, and good at uniting the mass of cadres, and upheld the unity and solidarity of the party. He maintained broad and close ties with the masses, and showed boundless warm-heartedness towards all comrades and the people. We should learn from his fine style, being modest and prudent— unassuming and approachable, setting an example by his conduct, and living in a plain and hard-working way. After this speech, Deng was not seen again in any official capacity for over a year. He had sent Mao a letter after Mao refused to see him in person, and in the letter, Deng offered his resignation and awaited the chairman to decide his fate. Hua Kuo Feng is made Zhou Enlai's replacement, but only has the title of acting premier at this point. Shortly thereafter, Dung is publicly criticized, which means, in essence, he's out and fair game for attack. Hua steps into Dung's big shoes, and from this point forward, until Dung makes another comeback of the century, he's in charge. So, by January 1976, Dung is back in the doghouse, so to speak. Mao didn't do anything to halt the public criticism and verbal attacks, but he also didn't allow things to get out of hand. Mao began to worry that Deng was possibly going to use his ties to all his military cronies to do some mischief. That's how paranoid Mao had become. He proactively went after Ye Ying as well as Deng and took precautions to prevent those two from uniting against him. And Deng was raked over the coals yet again, and the same old things were dredged up alongside all the criticisms of how he handled things in 1975. The white or black cat thing, also, this was brought up and thrown at Dung again. Mao had said, you know, as far as that whole thing about it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white, that this was bourgeois thinking and didn't distinguish between imperialism and Marxism. You know, so, how can Dung win in this kind of a situation? And you can imagine, Jiang Qing and her fellows were having a field day attacking Dung. And if she went overboard, Mao let her have it. Mao was still hoping Dung was going to come around and, you know, see eye to eye with him. So while Mao was more than willing to let Dung fall, he placed limitations on how, you know, widespread the criticism could go. And then on April 5th, another earthquake happens. This one happened on the Grave Sweeping Festival, the Qingming Holiday. This is the holiday when you pay respects to your ancestors and go sweep their graves and, you know, tidy things up. Now, back in 1976, there wasn't any Weibo or, you know, anything like that, but the people of Beijing had their own ways of getting the word out. And the word got out that everyone should converge on Tiananmen Square to show their support for Zhou Enlai. Jiang Qing got wind of this. She knew the people weren't happy about how, you know, Joe got short shrift at his funeral ceremony, and now they were taking matters into their own hands and were determined to give their beloved premier his due and the Qingming holiday was the ultimate perfect opportunity. When Jiang Qing tried to use her mouthpiece, the newspaper Wenhui Bao, to write a criticism of Deng and Zhou, the whole thing backfired on her, and people were so outraged by this editorial Jiang Qing had printed that there was this spontaneous outpouring of protest. In Nanjing, they laid thousands and thousands of wreaths, and there was a Big commotion when Jiang Qing's people tried to clear them away and, you know, throw cold water on this whole outpouring of support for Zhou. Everything was building up to April 5th, the Qingming Festival. Deng was being warned if anything happened, he would have to take the blame for it. Even before April 5th, you began to see some action. Not only were people laying wreaths and leaving poems and messages and support for Zhou and Deng Xiaoping as well, they were also attacking and demonstrating All kinds of scorn for the Gang of Four. And as the days ticked by and April 5th came closer, more and more people had come and gone to Tiananmen. The government demanded, don't lay Reese. They did anyway. April 4th, over 2 million people came to pay their respects to Zhou and demonstrate their support for Deng Xiaoping and vent their spleen about Jiang Qing and the Gang of Four. At a Politburo meeting held the evening before Qingming, it was decided that All the wreaths that had been laid so far should be cleared from Tiananmen Square. And this action was carried out in the middle of the night so that the morning of April 5th, they were all gone. The people were pissed when word got round. Well, things got out of control and there was a big hullabaloo, you know, burned cars and a lot of general petty destruction to make a point. It didn't get too out of hand, but it scared the heck out of the authorities. The Politburo dragged Dung in that day and gave him an old-fashioned criticism session. They were determined to clear Tiananmen Square of protesters. All kinds of plans were made to clear out the square using whatever force necessary, but by late evening, most people had gone home and the last holdouts were easily overwhelmed and hauled away. The Politburo met early the next morning to try and figure out what had just happened and what to do now. Mao all along was briefed constantly, and he's as concerned as anyone, and he insists there was a plot behind this whole April 5th demonstration, but he doesn't point the finger at Deng yet. And in her usual shrill and demanding way, Jiang Qing was still insisting with every breath in her body to have Deng kicked out of the party. But Mao, though shell-shocked by what had just happened the day before, still stands by Deng in this respect. So he's down, but he's not out. But Deng was stripped of all positions of power. Hua becomes the premier instead of just the acting premier. He also becomes the first vice chairman of the party. So pretty much he's next in line. Liu Shaoqi, Lin Biao, they too had that dubious honor, but they didn't end up too good afterwards. We'll look at uh, Hua Guofeng in another podcast. He died a few years ago in 2008. I won't go into too much detail now but he had his good points he was sort of a gerald ford type in that he came in for a brief time kept things calm no pots boiled over or anything and then boom he was gone and rarely did you ever hear from him again after that but he got into the history books gotta hand that to him ni pan shi wo fang xin mao said these magical words to hua Guofeng feng publicly on april 30th and that's all it took with you in charge i am at peace there was this famous painting or propaganda poster, or I remember it well, I saw it in China when I was there for the first time in 1980, and it showed Mao sitting with Hua in his study, and Hua is, you know, beaming before Mao, you know, who didn't look as good in real life as he did in the painting, but you could see from, you know, the papers in their hands that it's a working session, and Mao is smiling at Hua with the caption below, you know, like I said, Ni ban shi, wo fang xin. And Mao should have been at peace. Hua was from Xiangtan in Hunan, hometown also of Marshal Peng Dehuai. But nonetheless, he's a Hunan guy, just like Chairman Mao. He was a Mao Zedong shoe shiner going all the way back, so he met the most important of all criteria. And Mao felt at ease that Hua wouldn't judge his legacy too harshly after he went to go, you know, meet Marx. Well, now comes the best part. Deng is now stripped of power, and Jiang Qing now feels she finally, after so many failed attempts, has Deng right where she needs him. Deng was vulnerable, and Mao knew this, so in order to protect him from the Gang of Four, he orders the military to watch out for Deng and keep him and his family safe. Shortly thereafter, two great friends and old revolutionaries, Wang Chun and Ye Jianying, they had an initial secret meeting over at Ye's place out in the Western Hills area of Beijing. Deng Xiaoping didn't know it yet, but almost as soon as he was ousted from power, his friends were already planning his rescue. There were all these behind-the-scenes goings-on between the conspirators who were planning not only the Gang of Four's overthrow, but Deng's return as well. But for the time being, Deng laid low. In any case, on May 11th, Mao had a pretty serious heart attack and almost died. And pretty much after that, he didn't even look at party documents anymore. The next big event to rock the country was the death on July 6th of Zhu De, the PLA founder, and oldest comrade of Chairman Mao going all the way back to the Jinggangshan days in the late 20s. We'll feature Zhu De on a future podcast. 22 days after Marshal Zhu De's passing, a 23-second earthquake at a Quarter to four in the morning, measuring between seven and eight on the Richter scale, flattened the city of Tangshan. A quarter million people or more were killed, and the quake was so powerful, a third of the buildings in Beijing were structurally affected. Beijing is only a little more than a couple hours away by car from Tangshan, the earthquake's epicenter. Now, going back to the times of Zhou Gong back in the Zhou Dynasty, there was this. Whole notion of heaven's mandate and that natural disasters were always a sign from heaven that the current incumbent in power was losing its favor. So when this magnitude of an earthquake happened, you know, considering the times and all, the people had to have been thinking the same thing. Or at least that something big was about to happen. Well, something big indeed happened. Following uh, Chairman Mao's earlier heart attack on May 11th, He had another one in June and another one in September. Just past midnight, as September 8th turned into September 9th, Chairman Mao died. The next month saw the maximum amount of drama at the highest levels of power in the government and the party. I mean, this was even better than Cao Cao fighting Liu Bei and Sun Quan. Nothing less than the total control of China was at stake once again. On the one side were the Gang of Four, led by Jiang Qing. On the other side were the Zhou Enlai, Deng Xiaoping people, men of vision and ability who were fiercely loyal to the Communist Party and all that it stood for, but also didn't allow party orthodoxy to get in the way of doing what was right or what needed to be done. So these two forces now faced each other in a showdown. Now, Hua Guofeng comes into his own. He's the top guy now. He's Chairman Hua. The first order of business is to deal with Mao's funeral arrangements. He did a good job, and he handled this commendably. As far as Deng Xiaoping went, since he was in disgrace, he was excluded from all the ceremonies. But uh, Vogel mentions that despite all that, Deng erected an altar to Mao in his home and paid his respects using his own way. Once this was all out of the way... It was about 10 days or so of every conceivable kind of ceremony and whatnot to honor Mao's memory. But when it came to an end, Jiang Qing took the fight right to the enemy. And the enemy was almost everyone. You see, no one liked her. No one outside her immediate circle of radical elites. She had no serious friends or any kind of power base whatsoever. She had a loud voice, ambition that knew no bounds and... All along, she had used her husband's name to smash and grab whatever she wanted. Now, he was gone, and her bark, though still loud and annoying, was now infinitely less bigger than her bite. She lost her fangs when Mao died. Nonetheless, she went on the attack and was most aggressive with the most important thing in the world that mattered to everyone at this point, and that was Mao's personal papers. Jiang Qing, or one of her proxies, in this case Mao Yuanxin, Uh, wanted to get control of these documents. Naturally, whoever controlled them could conceivably alter them, so the best thing to do was just let Wang Dongxing handle it. Wang Dongxing, who we haven't mentioned, all of a sudden has a big walk-on starring role in this part of episode five on the life of Deng Xiaoping. Wang basically served as Mao's bodyguard. Uh, That is, not him personally. Wang was in charge of the 8341 Special Regiment that protected the highest leaders, like a palace guard. I guess he was in charge of uh, China's version of our U.S. Secret Service. It's still around today, except they call it the uh, 61889 Regiment. Now, he had always been a Mao man and had excellent radical credentials. Having Wang Dongxing on their side was going to be critical if either faction had a chance of defeating the other. Rumors made it to the very top that the Gang of Four were up to something that was going to go down between October 7th and 9th. In addition to this wild rumor, there were other signs that Jiang Qing, the gang, and their minions were up to no good and, you know, planned to make some sort of power grab. So, our hero, Ye Jianying, he picks up the ball and goes to consult with the two most important people in the world right now for China – uh, Hua Guofeng and Wang Dongxing. Hua had sent a Li Xiannian over to Ye to sort of feel him out. So it was after Li and Ye met that the uh, planning began. Ye Jianying, by the way, is the Central Military Commission vice chairman as well as minister of defense. So he sort of packs a punch. It seems all three of them, Ye, Hua, and Wang, were sort of thinking the same thing. So there was only one thing left to do. Now, in these kind of situations, this is where it pays to have friends and relationships and influential positions. Jiang Qing, like I said, nobody liked her. And although everyone had to show a minimum amount of deference, everyone was just waiting for the axe to fall on the back of her neck. And these men, her enemies, they uh, had relationships in place Ye Jianying, he was only one rung below Mao. He was a major force and had a network of people in and outside of his uh, military power base who he could depend on. One phone call would be all it would take. And so they planned. They secretly and very quickly planned how to deal with the Gang of Four. The gang all lived in the Diaoyutai guesthouse area, and their compound was guarded by their own armed guards. So rather than storm the Diaoyutai compound... They opted instead for a trap. October 6th, Hua Guofeng calls a standing committee meeting. An innocuous enough event, this wasn't uncommon, it was called for 8pm inside the Zhongnanhai compound. A lot of history had taken place in that complex since it was began during the Liao Dynasty back in the 10th century AD. There were about to be some major fireworks. They called the meeting at Huai Ren Hall inside the Zhongnanhai compound, where many an important meeting had been held before, uh, often chaired by Mao himself. And then one by one, they came, Wang Hongwen first, then Zhang Chunxiao, and then Yao Wenyuan. As soon as they showed up for the meeting, they were arrested and taken before Hua Guofeng and told they were being held by the party center and their crimes were going to be investigated. So, three down, only one big one left to go. They got Jiang Qing at her house. They just went in just like that and took her. From the second they took Wang Hongwen into custody until the moment Jiang Qing was neutralized, only half an hour had passed. Now, was that a textbook operation or what? Ye Jianying, way to go. Hey, and Hua Guofeng, he could just as easily have sided with the radicals, but he took the side of China and went down in history. His role was brief on China's main stage, but he pulled through in the clutch. And in the days and weeks that followed, Hua began to consolidate his position and receive the utmost support from Ye Jianying and Li Xiannian. For the time being, no one wanted to rock the boat, and the best way to do that was to continue to show support for Mao's chosen successor. So we'll save this for another podcast about all the juicy details about the Gang of Four and how they were overthrown and all their hotheads were arrested and what ultimately happened to them. And from the very first moment until the days that followed, the Chinese military backed Hua and Ye up to the hilt. There was never, ever a chance that the gang and their people were going to be able to stand up to this kind of force. October 18th, 1976, Hua Guofeng made the announcement to the whole nation about the fall of the Gang of Four. So to say that there was joyous celebration and dancing in the streets is another in a long line of understatements of the century. Because the party was keeping up appearances and, you know, other than smashing the Gang of Four, it was business as usual until they figured out what to do. So business as usual included continued criticism of Deng Xiaoping. He hasn't been brought back yet. But with the Gang of Four now out of the picture, The criticism of Dung was a little less harsh. Well, in this part five of this overview, and by now you've no doubt figured out that Dung was a force of nature and endowed with certain leadership qualities and charisma. Hua Guofeng knew this as much as the next guy, and everyone knew if he brought Dung back, he'd be shoved aside in no time at all. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. After two or three months passed... Li Xiannian and Ye Jianying began to sort of feel around the edges and explore if there was maybe some way to end Deng's period in the political wilderness. By mid-December, Deng is back reading party documents. I can't even imagine how exhilarating this must have been to Deng Xiaoping to not only see the light at the end of the tunnel, but to come back at such a time as this. I bet when he sat down in his easy chair in his home, and lit up that cigarette and read that first-party document, he must have felt good. By the end of 1976, Rod Stewart had the hottest record on the planet, Tonight's the Night, and in China, everyone knew Deng Xiaoping was coming back. On January 6th, 1977, it was official, and soon afterwards, Deng no longer had to carry the cross of the April 5th Tiananmen incident, as Blame for this incident was put squarely on the Gang of Four instead, which is where it belonged. And we're going to stop right here. I'm running a little long once again, but this one was exciting, wasn't it? I mean, that was one heck of a year. Kangsheng, December 1975, to kick the whole thing off, then Zhou Enlai's death, April 5th, Tiananmen incident, Zhu De's death, Tangshan earthquake, Mao's death, the arrest of the Gang of Four. Quite a lot of action packed up into a single year. But it's said that dragon years are like this sometimes. So let's hope next year when we usher in the uh, year of the dragon, only good things happen to us all. And that's it, my intelligent, fascinating, and good-looking listeners. We're going to pick up next week with uh, what else but the topic of Hua versus Dung. Everyone knows what's going to happen, but it's a whole process that has to take place first. And we'll pick it up in 1977 and see how that all plays out. This is Laszlo Montgomery once again. I'm here in none other than the City of Trees and PhDs, Claremont, California, 91711. Founded in 1907, Deng Xiaoping was only three years old then. It was four degrees centigrade when I woke up this morning, only one degree cooler than it was in uh, Harbin. In other words, it was cold. Take care, everyone. And uh, wherever you may be listening, it is my greatest hope that you'll join me next week for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.